I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Can you begin reading at verse 11? The overall theme of these Easter meetings has been getting more of God. We looked at practically what that means. How do we get more of God? We spent time recognizing that we need to draw close to Him in humility. And there's been a, uh, a somberness. Uh, I think it's a heaviness of God's presence. Remember that God is a holy God. And we charismatic, Pentecostal, evangelical believers love to celebrate. And we are celebrating but we are remembering that God is a holy God and it is impossible in our own strength, given our own deep innate sinfulness ever to approach him. But Jesus has made it possible. How to have more of God? Today I want to speak about the only way that we can get anything of God, let alone more of him, is to enjoy the depths of a purified conscience. Only when we know that we are deeply cleansed of sin, and this is totally not of our doing, but everything to do with what Jesus has achieved, then we can have boldness in the presence of God. So my title is The Sacrifice of Christ. And when we speak about the sacrifice of Christ, we are at the very heart of the Christian message. So many people would like to have Christianity without Christ. Many people would want Christianity without the cross. And yet, he and his cross are central to. But remember, it didn't end there. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. One of the things that I discover when I seek to share the gospel with people, and I'm not just talking about those of a Muslim background, which actually they deny that Jesus ever died. They don't see the necessity of atonement. But even our friends, people like many of them from the millennial generation, they haven't a clue. They say, what is this? The idea that God would punish his son, it's vile, it's ridiculous, and it is unnecessary. And yet, if we pause for a moment or two, we should see that in our society, true sacrifice is honored and even heroic. A week ago today, there was a terrorist attack in the south of France, in that idyllic place called Thebes. And it was an attack in a supermarket shopping center. The terrorist took eight hostages, but one of the policemen who was involved was Lieutenant Colonel in the French Gendarmerie. His name was Arnaud Petram. This man, who we understand was also a believer in Jesus Christ, felt he had no other option instinctively to seek to protect the public he managed to persuade the terrorist attacker to exchange himself for one of the hostages, a woman. 
And of course, the inevitable happened. He lost his life. And very recently in Paris, there was a national day of mourning and remembrance of this dear brother. The president of France, President Macron, had some very telling words to say. To be willing to die so that innocent people continue to live, this is the heart of a soldier's promise. To be ready to give your own life because nothing is more important than the life of a citizen, this is the ultimate effect of the transcendence he bore. What telling language. The president noticed that this was not an ordinary act. We're all blessed with the spirit of self-preservation. We need it every time we cross the road in London. And that's good and right. But there are times when we transcend our own natural responses and we enter into another realm altogether. Arno's brother Cedric said this of his brother. He gave his life for strangers. He must have known that he didn't really have a chance. If that doesn't make him a hero, I don't know what would. So we see a very up-to-date, current example of the value of sacrifice. And then we can begin to see if a human being, and it's not just believers who've done this, others have done it as well. But when we see people willing to sacrifice their own life so that others may live, surely we can begin to understand the grace and goodness of God in sacrificing his son. Now, I'm not trying to make this so logical that we can all accept it in terms of human understanding. Because the love of God transcends every depth and every height and every length and every other aspect, every other dimension that is possible for us to contemplate. That's why the cross of Christ is proverbially foolishness to the Greeks with their philosophy and a stumbling block to the beloved Jews who could not even conceive that God would allow his Messiah to go through such a thing. We all have had the childhood question, Mummy, why is Good Friday called good? That's what, when they killed Jesus. And the reply is, yes, it is Good Friday because he took our sins away. When we go deeper into this, and maybe the word has come across to you today a little bit bizarre, um, when we speak about the blood, the blood of Jesus. This is not the theology of the butchery. It's the theology of the cross and the language of sacrifice. But the question is, why would God punish his son? Blood is an offense. And yet we've been singing in various ways today, 
the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from every sin. Well, the dear man who gave his life was awarded the highest possible honor in France, the Légion d'Honneur. And we too can give to Christ all the honor, all the glory, and indeed the very honor and glory of God rests upon him who gave his life. And the Bible says, therefore, God highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus himself said, there is no greater love than a man would lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans 5 verse 8 that God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But the question remains, why does God require a sacrifice? Forgiveness is costly. Many people say, well, why doesn't God just forgive? If I forgive, I don't require anything. I just forgive you. Well, there's several things here. First of all, uh, forgiveness is always costly. I'll come back, come back to that. But God is not like you and I. Remember who he is. Not only is he the all-righteous God, the all-holy God, he is also the one who upholds all holiness, all righteousness. And therefore we could reverently say it is difficult for God to forgive because he can't just dismiss it. He can't just ignore it. He is the moral governor of the universe. He must uphold justice. It's in his very nature. He is the moral lawgiver and the moral judge. And that's based on who he is in his character. The God who is so holy that he cannot even look upon sin, cannot tolerate sin, not because he's intolerant, he's incredibly generous and gracious in putting up with us and, and, and ultimately providing the answer for sin, but it must be dealt with. There is a debt to be paid. I put it this way very often, it's a very simple way, if Bruce Atkinson owed me 10 pounds, let's have some fun with this, let's make it a little bit more, any advance on 10, 20, 30, 50, 100, okay, 100 pounds, make it 1,000 pounds, it's Good Friday. If he owed me 1,000 pounds, which he, he doesn't, by the way, not that I know of anyway, he doesn't, but if he did, and so anyway, I, I just get a fit of generous, generous heartedness, I say, okay, Bruce, I forgive your debt. Who has paid that 1,000 pounds? He hasn't, but I have. I have paid the price. I've made the sacrifice. There is always a price to pay when you think about forgiveness, especially at the ultimate level of God's justice. There's a debt to be paid. There's honor to be restored. 
One of the things that we must understand is that sin is always personal. It is like walking up to the throne room of God and slapping him on the face. It is personal against him and his, his honor. He's been dishonored. And to restore that honor requires a price. So there's a debt to be paid, honor to be restored, and, a, and justice to be satisfied. This is something that really we should be able to understand. Our society is not an entirely lawless society. Just break the law here and there and discover for yourself. Sin incurs a penalty, and that penalty must be paid. The Bible says the penalty of sin is death. That's not because God is vindictive. It's not because God says, you don't love me, therefore I'll slap you. No, when you sin, you willfully make a separation between you and God, and that separates you from who he is, and he is life. You have made the choice to walk in the ways of death. And there's coming a time after God's goodness and forbearance. Many people say, if God's a God of love, why does he let all the evil continue? If he's a God of justice, why can't I have justice? Please, friends, don't plead for justice. You need mercy, not justice. But the day is coming when God's Presence will be so manifested, the reality of God will be so manifested that everything that is of darkness will disappear. And when God's light shines on that day, the Bible calls it Judgment Day. Read the Old Testament. So I've been doing this week, I happen to hit on, I think, you know, all of those passages of judgment. And you say, my God, my God, how can we get through this book until we remember that God is saying, you can't mess with me. There is nowhere else to go. If you mess with me, you mess with ultimate reality and you'll put yourself on the wrong side of the line. And those actions which are in the Old Testament often particularly physical in their manifestation are nothing more than God saying I'm a God of justice I'm warning you about this because there is a way out but you need to take that way out the demands of justice we see that in our society there are many many people who don't even believe in God but are working for social justice and that's now very, very popular when people stand up and talk about social justice. And we as Bible-believing Christians, we must be at the forefront of the battle to introduce greater levels of social justice in our society. We cannot call ourselves Christians and not be at the forefront of that. And so we wholeheartedly concur there's civil justice, criminal justice, and the mother of all justices, the human rights declarations, which are nothing more than human justice. In fact, the highest court for us in Europe is the court of justice. It's talking about justice. It's talking about what is fair, what is right, and we all know that that is correct. And when people err away from what is fair and just and right, there is an outcry. 
the last 24 hours, even the last 12 hours, we've seen grown men, grown Australian men, grown Australian sportsmen, weep like children in front of the cameras. Why? Because of the Australian cricketing scandal. They were interfering with the ball. And that's, as we would say in England, that's just not cricket. And, and why is it so wrong? And why do these men now feel shame and have compassion on them, please? But why? That's because it's unfair. And if you're going to play a sport, people have to have a sporting chance to cheat at sport. Everybody, the people who say there is no justice in the world and the people who would reject the idea of God's justice are the ones who are screaming at these people who have behaved unfairly in their sport. So God cannot ignore justice, moral justice. He cannot deny himself. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That is God's reality. Never mind about your reality or my reality. Let's not think about human rights. But God has divine rights. And he has declared, not arbitrarily as we shall see, but he has declared that what it takes is the shedding of blood. All this was introduced in principle in very physical and imperfect ways in the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and verse 11, it's explained for us why it is so necessary. There it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when blood is shed, it's speaking about life violently, punitively terminated. That's the reality. He said, I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And the blood of Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of these Old Testament prophetic short, uh, foreshadowings. I nearly said shortcomings. That's in my mind. I'll explain that at the moment. They were pointing to something, pointing to something better than themselves, pointing to something more complete, more perfect, so that when Christ shed his blood, he was able to declare, it is finished. Up until that time, the Old Testament sacrifices particularly the one I'm thinking about is on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the blood was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and that blood would cover the sins of the people for another year. But when the next year came along, it had to happen again. And the following year, again and again. So much so that the writer to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 3 Riley comments, this is the annual reminder. The annual reminder that your sins must be paid. It's like the annual reminder that the 
rent might be, must be paid, or the monthly reminder. My, my, my landlord, way back when I was a student, had, had the most irritating habit, was knocking on the door every Friday, and the knock would be ominous. It was like the hand of death. A, a knock, a knock, a knock. And I would play games and just pretend to be out for a little while, and then he would come in. And then he would put on a joviality, which was borderline demonic. He'd go, ah! It's the day. It's the day. Uh, and what day was that? I'd pretend. What day is that? Rent day. Rent day. God, in the Old Testament, is kind of reminding people that there was something to be paid. The rent was due. It was due. And, and, and it lasted a year. And then it had to go on and on and on so that the people were never free from the realization of their own sin. They never had a purified conscience. That's why it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But when the time comes, when Christ shed his blood upon the cross, it was game over for the devil. No more debt collection, no more rent collection. Now a blanket proclamation of salvation, freedom, and no condemnation upon God's people. Here we have, yeah, go, if you want to praise him, get in quick, because I'm rapidly coming to the end of, end of this message. In Hebrews chapter 9, second part of verse 26, it says, But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. Can you see the language here? Is not covering sin for another year, paying a next installment uh, and, and having to keep on paying, keep on paying as if God was some kind of payday lender. No, it doesn't increase. It is dealt with once for all upon the cross, eternal redemption, and sin isn't just covered, sin isn't just tolerated, sin isn't just passed over, sin is put away permanently. That's how we can boast of eternal salvation, not in our strength, but by the blood of Jesus. Now this means all your sin was nailed to the cross. Remember Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now it's even more dramatic for us because we weren't even born. Even before we were born, not while we were sinners. Yeah, we were born in sin and, and, and developed our own particular habits of sin. But even before we were born, Christ had already died and paid for our sins. All our sins were future to the cross. And that means now that all your sins are nailed to the cross. Hear me well, past present and future, any sin that you've ever committed, any sin that God, God forbid that you may be committing and any sin that you may f commit in the future is already dealt with. It's nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Amen. Now, here is where people say, oh, oh, if that's the case, Oh, that's wonderful. I can do as I like. Yes, no. And here's the thing. 
Many believers think that you must live in this constant consciousness of sin. And the testimony is, is that the deeper you go with God, the more you'll be aware of your sin. Now, I understand what that means. If you want to go get closer to God, you're going to see his holiness and purity, and things are going to show up in your life that hadn't showed up before. And you need to deal with them. Or, as you go deeper with God, you will find the depths of sin working inwardly within you. As the Bible says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And you begin to discover the closer you get with God, just what egotistical, self-centered people we really are. And that's why we need the grace of God. But there is this wonderful, wonderful way in which God cleanses our conscience. Verse 14, Hebrews 9, How much more will the blood of Christ, who with the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And there's only one thing that can cure your bad conscience, and that is the words of the gospel. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God will remember your sins no more. There is a story of an aged prophet, a man who in the latter part of his life didn't get out very much, but still shaped the lives of many, many people through his wisdom, his insight, and he was particularly developed in the gift of discernment. Walk into his presence and he would see your sins. And a young man who had committed a big sin. No, it was bigger than that. A very big sin. Was so conscience-stricken, so guilt-ridden, that he thought, I'm going to go to the prophet and I'm going to declare the prophet my sin before he comes and finds me out. And he went into the presence of the prophet and he said, Prophet, I want you to know I have sinned. And the prophet said, hold it right there. I usually tell people their sin. I'll tell you yours. So the prophet prayed and he said, God, this young man has committed a great sin. And God said to him, oh yes, he has. And the prophet said, and tell me, God, what sin has he committed? And there was a pause. And God replied, do you know, I really can't remember. <laughs> Don't think that self-loathing, beating yourself up, living like a worm before God, that's worldly sorrow. That, that doesn't lead to holiness. In fact, all of this kind of stuff, self-loathing, living under condemnation, beating yourself up, saying you're not worthy, you're not worthy, you're not worthy, is not Christian talk. That's worldly sorrow. There's a world of difference, what we've experienced this week, godly sorrow. Somber, yes. People were weeping, yes. And we're allowed to when we see the holiness of God. But it was not worldly sorrow. It was godly sorrow. 
Worldly sorrow never leads to repentance. It binds you more tightly to the sins that hold you down. But true change begins with no condemnation. Because we, that means we can go to God, put our focus on Him, and it's this purified conscience, this wonderful sense of no condemnation upon our lives, that everything is good as we have just sung. Whatever else happens, we know it is well with my soul. Yes, the deeper you go with God, the more you become aware of stuff you need to deal with. But as you walk in the light of what you know, as the Apostle John says, then the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. And today, how do we respond? God, if there's stuff in my life that I'm conscious of, that I know about, bring it to him. And he will take it away. And remember, always, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses from every sin. And it wasn't just the cross that did it. He was delivered for our offenses, but raised for our justification. It's a living relationship with Christ. Not somebody who died a long time ago, but somebody who was raised from the dead and who is alive today. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our high priest, who is living in the presence of God right now, representing us, our advocate on high, ensuring that we keep in the justified position that he has bought for us. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the wonderful cross, the glorious cross of Jesus. Thank you.